Hi friends, this is Melanie Avalon. I have a quick announcement before we begin. If you read my original self-published book, The What When Wine Diet, and experienced significant weight loss or health benefits from paleo and or an intermittent fasting lifestyle and perhaps with some wine, and if you would like to be a feature testimonial in a national TV print or radio interview for the new version of my book, which will be called What When Wine, and that is out in stores nationwide in January 2018, I would love, love, love to hear from you. So if that applies to you and you would like to be featured, just send an email to contact at melanieavalon.com. Okay, thank you so much, and here's the show. Welcome to episode 26 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, 
clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 26 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. And I'm not just here with Jen Stevens. I also have a special guest today, Todd White of dryfarmwines.com. Todd, how are you? Awesome and excited to talk about ketogenic diet, intermittent fasting, healthy wines, and just rock and roll lifestyle. This is kind of a surreal moment for me, Todd, because I first heard you on multiple other podcasts like Dave Asprey's Bulletproof podcast. So having like doing this right now is so surreal. I'm just, I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm, this is going to be great. <laughs> well, I am, uh, you guys talk a lot about some of my favorite topics and fasting is at the top of the list. I love you guys because you source all natural, all organic wines, low sugar, low alcohol. It's amazing. And I, I, as a wine person, <laughs> I'm obsessed with that myself. So I was enraptured with your company. But then to find out after talking to you guys that a lot of you also are low carb or ketogenic and or intermittent fasting, it's just kind of crazy. It all goes together. You know, this is really how we got into this healthy wine business was trying to solve a problem we had in wanting to drink, but wanting to drink in a healthier way that was consistent with our biohacking protocols and consistent with our nutritional programming and consistent with our fasting. And so there's there's 14 of us on staff that work at Dry Farm Wines, and all of us are ketogenic, and all of us are either on um, a 16, 18, or 24-hour intermittent fast. So we take, we also do cold thermogenesis, Wim Hof breathing, a whole bunch of other biohacks, including blood-tested ketogenic nutritional programming. Uh, so it's and also, we're super, super into food and taste and wine. I mean, we're kind of, we're tastemakers. We're obsessed with taste. So this whole concept of, you know, that somehow you're giving something up by fasting or giving something up by adapting a ketogenic or a low-carb lifestyle, and of course, they're a little bit different, but we, in fact, think that, that these protocols actually enhance the life experience and even enhance your food experience. Right, so you're getting to really raw, clean, whole, healthy foods and beautiful, luxurious, healthy, fresh fats, and you know it just doesn't get more hedonistic than that. Well, hey Todd, I do want to jump in. This is Jen. I do heart carbs, so 
by that I mean heart like I love carbs I do eat carbs I'm not ketogenic so I just wanted to bring that out I'm ketogenic during the fast of course meaning that you know we're in ketosis but I just wanted to bring that out there um we have many 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 um listeners who may be ketogenic too but as far as that goes we're not strictly ketogenic Melanie yeah, we do all the things. Well, I personally started um, super low carb. I've been ketogenic before. I'm doing higher carb now, but like you said, ketogenic during the fast, obviously. And now that it's getting cold again, I'm considering trying another run of hardcore keto. So I'm really excited to talk to you about how wine and alcohol relates to keto. But before we jump into all of that, Todd, would you like to tell us a little bit about Dry Farm Wines and what makes you guys unique and a little bit about the wine processing process and the additives and all of the stuff? We'll dive down the wormhole. Um, I can talk about this topic for more than an hour, so I'm going to try and wrap it up into something that's pretty concise. Here's what's going on in traditional wines. And when I say traditional wines, I'm talking about more than 99% of the wines sold on the market today, commercial wines, wines you would buy in a wine store or in a grocery store or any kind of retail like that, unless you're dealing with a very, very specialty retailer that that has some knowledge about natural wines, and there are only a handful in the country. And so most everyone is drinking what we would consider to be a commercial product. That being said, Here's what's happened in the wine industry, not unlike what's happened in the food supply. So what there's a couple of startling facts that your audience doesn't know. So one is this kind of mass consolidation in the wine industry, which has been quite secret. Uh, the wine industry doesn't want people to know this because the way wine is sold, wine is sold through stories and romance and kind of uh, and vibe. So I'll tell you about that. 52% of all the wines made in the United States are made by just three giant companies. Oh, I did not know that. The top 30 companies make over 70% of all the wine made in the United States. And so you, this is the same thing that's happening in our food supply, right? And so what you have are these massive factories. Now, they don't want you to know that. So these multi-billion dollar companies hide behind thousands of labels and brands to have you believe that perhaps you're drinking from a farmhouse or a chateau. Well, the fact is you're drinking from a massive factory and a lot of industrial farming. So that's kind of what's happening. And here's the other startling realization. There are 76. This is the wine industry's dark, deep, dirty secret. There are 76 additives approved by the FDA for the use in winemaking. Now, why doesn't your audience know about these 76 additives? Because the wine industry has spent tens of millions of dollars in lobby money to keep contents labeling off of wine. Here's why they don't want a contents label on it. If it had a contents label on it, it would look just like the contents label for the other processed packaged foods that you see in the grocery store. It would have a long list of chemical names and additives and processes that you have no idea what they mean from coloring agents to ammonia phosphate, heavy metals, all kinds of nasty long list. And that's just additives in the winemaking process. That doesn't even cover the pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides that are being used in U.S. vineyards to reduce crop risk, increase yields, and make farming cheaper, right? So glyphosate or Roundup is the number one used herbicide in U.S. vineyards. 
So this is all kinds of nasty, nasty problems going on in these wines. And this is also what's causing people to feel bad, particularly from red wines, when they drink them. So what natural winemaking does is it contains no additives. It contains no chemicals in farming. And it's made in a different style historically the way wines were made 100 years ago or more. So wines have been being consumed for some 9,000 years. And wines were basically made the same over the last few thousand years whilst, uh, up until about 50 years ago when you know, two of our favorite values came into play, profits and greed. right? And so this was started in the West – which is the reason that you can find more imported wines that are cleaner than you can domestic wines because greed and profiteering and the use of these additives and, and, um, and chemicals really started in America. And then, you know, now it's become a global problem. So now many, there are 56 additives approved by the EU for the use in winemaking. So all that being said, there are a few hundred thousand winemakers and a few hundred thousand wine brands in the world, and uh, only less than five hundred of them are actually naturally made. There are less than five hundred. There are less than five hundred natural winemakers in the world. Uh, and when we say natural wines, uh, most people say, "Well, aren't all wines natural?" But for the reasons I just described to you, they are not. Uh, actually, a very, very tiny percentage of wines are naturally made. And the reason for that is because it's not very profitable, it's more risky for the winemaker, and finally, you can't make natural wines in very high quantities. Uh, once, you get, once you get into high quantity production, you have to use additives and stabilizers uh, to, in order to control the risk in winemaking of, you know, of variable bacterias and things that can go wrong in the winemaking process. Once you get enough volume, you just can't control those processes without chemicals. That's the reason that all of these commercial wines contain them. Well, I'm going to say this is shocking to me. I bet, Melanie, you probably knew a lot more about this since your book is focused on wine. But I had no idea that they added all of these things to the wine. I mean, I just am thinking the ingredients are like grapes and they squish them and then they ferment and then there you go. Um, And, you know, something you said really jumped out at me and that the red wine has the most additives. I actually do feel different when I drink red wine versus, you know, a white wine. So that explains a lot. What what are they putting in the red wine? Well, there's a couple of different things. It's not that they're putting anything in the red wine per se that doesn't go into white wines normally, but here's what's happening. So let's just talk real quickly about how wine is made just real fast. Cause one of the questions that we're going to come into that I get the most often is how are your wine sugar free? So wine juice is squeezed from the grapes of either a white grape or a red grape. Now here's the thing. Juice from a red grape and juice from a white grape are both clear, right? So red wine gets its color from contact with the skins. Now I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But here's how wine's made. So you take this juice, you inoculate it with yeast, and here's another major difference between commercial wines and natural wines. Natural wines are made exclusively with native yeast that are wild and indigenous to the vineyard where the grape is grown. So all grapes have yeast on the skin. Commercial wines 
are made with genetically modified commercial yeast. Now, there's a reason why the winemakers do that. Again, when they make wine in any significant volume, they must use a commercial yeast because the wild native yeast are too temperamental, right? So they're just too difficult to work with in volume. And winemakers, like most people in the world, are a little bit lazy, so they just don't want to work with the native yeast because it's temperamental and difficult to work with. Um, a, a commercial yeast is very sturdy and very predictable. And yeast are also modified now to create different flavor profiles in wine. So we have no idea what these modifications are, what kind of impact they have on our health, because we don't, you know, there's nobody who's ever done any study on it. There's nobody to fund it. We believe it's a, compo a key component to why natural wines are healthier because they're using native yeasts that are indigenous to the vineyard where the grape is grown. That being said, the, the, the grape juice, which is teeming with sugar, is inoculated with the yeast and the yeast eats the sugar. Now, the byproduct of that yeast eating the sugar is carbon dioxide and ethyl alcohol. So that's how wine is made. Now, how wine becomes sugar free is if the winemaker allows the fermentation to complete. So in other words, the yeast eats all of the sugar and then the yeast will die. And then the fermentation is complete. But what's happening in commercial wines, because the global palate and particularly the American palate renders sweet and likes sweet things, we're sugar-free, we don't eat sugar, but, but most palates are trained to desire, most people are addicted to sugar. So what's happening in commercial wines is that they are using sulfur dioxide to kill the yeast prior to it completing fermentation, leaving residual sugar behind, also known as RS in the industry, residual sugar. That's how sugar gets in wine. It's not added. It's that the winemaker, as a matter of the winemaking style, kills the yeast before it completes fermentation. That's the reason most commercial wines have sugar in them. Our wines are fully fermented and therefore sugar-free. Now, let me make this point. Not all natural wines are sugar-free. Some natural winemakers also leave sugar behind. We only know that our wines are naturally sugar-free because we do independent lab testing on every wine that we sell because we want to ensure for our own health and for the health of our thousands and thousands of customers that the wine is sugar-free. We're also testing for a whole bunch of other things, which we can get into lab testing if we want. But we, we do independent lab testing on every wine that we, that we sell. So back to the contact with the skins, how red wine gets its color. So remember I mentioned the juice from white grapes and the juice from red grapes are both clear. So how red wine gets its color and also some more of its problems and benefits is from contact with the skin. So when red wine is made, they take the, the free run clear juice and they um, dump the skins into the tank. And so now you have the clear juice and the skin sitting on top of it, and the skins are punched down into the wine. And then there is a maceration period or a period of time when the skins actually soak in the juice. It's during this period that a couple of things happen. So you get uh, transference of tannins, you get 
an increase, a significant increase in the polyphenols in the wine. And you also get a significant increase in the biogenetic amines, particularly two, tyramine and histamine. Now, this is what makes most people feel bad, and particularly women, is this tyramine and histamine from drinking red wine. So where natural wines are different is that the maceration period or the, the contact on skin is much shorter. This contact on skin in commercial wines is being extended to really gross amount, uh, uh, really unnecessary periods, sometimes weeks, where it might just be a few days for a natural wine. And the reason they extend, as a matter of winemaking style, the reason they extend these maceration period or the contact on skin is because it makes the wine darker and it gives us the denser body. Now, the Americans believe that the darker a red wine is, the higher quality it is. So that's the reason they're leaving these skin contacts is for this darkness and this bigger body, which has nothing to do with the quality of wine. It is a winemaking style that appears appeals to a certain type of palate. Now, as I mentioned, the longer this maceration, the higher these biogenetic amines are, and that's what's calling, causing most people to feel bad from drinking red wine because white wines don't have any of these contact with the skins, which is where the amines are coming from. Now, on the other hand, and on the flip side, when, and the reason that red wine is generally thought to be healthier than white wines is because uh, the skin contact and contact with the seeds does create these more than 800 polyphenols. And the most important or the most well-known is called resveratrol, which you've probably heard. That's the, that is the, the most touted uh, polyphenol uh, of this more than 800 that has been shown in lab animals to extend longevity. So there's no human proof of it, and the concentrated amounts you would have to consume from drinking red wine would be quite exaggerated based on the lab animal test. But anyway, that's kind of the story about how wine is made and kind of what's making most people, and particularly women, feel bad. Well, thank you for clarifying that. I actually had heard that before about the skin, but that um, brings it home to all the, the listeners as well. But yep, well, good. Less skin time sounds like a good thing <laughs> for the wine. <laughs> I was familiar with the additives and all that stuff, and I knew that histamine was a major problem for people reacting, but I didn't know about the extended skin contact increasing that histamine. And I didn't know that was like a, a commercial thing <laughs> that happens. Speaking of how wine makes you feel and all of that, so obviously this is the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, and we obviously love intermittent fasting because we find that it makes us feel amazing and it makes us more in tune with our bodies and how certain foods make us feel. So Todd, well, first of all, you personally practice intermittent fasting, Todd? I do. So I've been practicing intermittent fasting daily for uh, almost four years. And for most of that period or uh, a little bit more than uh, 
probably two and a half years of that. I'm not exactly sure. Two and a half, not quite three years of that. I was practicing the lean gains method, which is basically a 16 to 18 hour fast with two meals feeding inside of the six, six hour window. So in other words, I would skip breakfast and eat lunch, you know, around one or two and then eat again uh, between six and seven. A little more than a year ago, I uh, went to a 24-hour fast, meaning I eat only once per day, uh, usually between 6 and 7 o'clock at night, but can be as late as 8 o'clock. But usually between 5.30 and 7 o'clock, I eat just once per day. Um, for me, and women have different experiences. I work with some women who do intermittent fasting. They are, most of them are on an 18-hour program. So, I, you know, it just, it just depends. You have to experiment with your own body and sort of what your own tolerances are. But, and you guys know more about that because you're female than I do. But for men, it's not as, as, as big of difficulty for most. But for me, when I went to eating once per day, I do have coffee or water or tea during, throughout the day. Um, some days just water, but most days I, I also have coffee. But, um, so, but when I went to eating just once per day, um, I, it was an extraordinary, uh, beneficial change for me. Um, just really, I mean, I've been in touch with my body for a long time because I've been nutritionally programmed for, for many years. But when I went to eating just once per day, I, I had really a significant increase in what I would you know, kind of call my body feel. Oh, yeah. Just seemed to be Definitely. like, I was really, really in touch. Just just felt so much closer to, to my body mind. Uh, eating for me, eating in the daytime, I didn't realize was really a significant sedative and a significant distraction to my body. You know, my body just, just when, now there was, as you know, I mean, when you go to eating once per day, I mean, there is, there is some psychological condition, conditioning, and we have this emotional narrative of eating. Um, it's not because we're hungry. It's, you know, we have this social narrative around it, and I still have to deal with that, not too often. Uh, but, you know, I had a guy who wanted to interview me. I've been on his podcast, but he wanted to meet with me, and he asked, he asked me, <laughs> I guess he'd forgotten. I'm sure I mentioned this on his podcast, but he asked me asked what you to I, lunch. Yeah, asked me to lunch. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, I'm happy to meet you for lunch, but I don't eat lunch. So although I do occasionally meet people for lunches and I just don't eat. I, and I don't because I've been so conditioned to not eating and I have no desire to eat in the middle of the day. I don't find it a challenge at all to sit in front of food or be with people who are eating or uh, just because it doesn't appeal to me. I think that's a great point, and it worries a lot of people that are new to intermittent fasting. Like, what do they do if they're invited to lunch? And Melanie and I, I think, have both had that experience of sitting with someone who's eating, and it's just fine. No, I don't have any issue with it once you're conditioned, once you're conditioned away from the, 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 the social and emotional narratives of it. It's like, you know, it's kind of like when you walk, and I'm sure you guys had the same experience. It's sort of like when you walk in the grocery store. And I see these boxes of yellow stuff, right, like cereals or crackers or anything like that. I look at it. I just visualize it and think about how poisonous it is. There is, It holds no appeal to me at all. 
right? And so it's like I have this emotional narrative with it that that is just poison, right? And it's just going to be toxic for my body and mind. And I feel the same way about eating in the middle of the day. It just isn't, it just isn't benefiting me. And so I don't have any desire to do it. But, but the, um, I think for me, this is another thing we talk a lot about in, inside, inside our group. You know, we're surrounded with like-minded people. Uh, we have customers who are like-minded people. We associate and run in biohacking circles and conferences of like-minded health professionals. And, you know, it's not like I have run other businesses before in more traditional real estate spaces and stuff. And the break room, oh my gosh, you know, it's like every single day somebody's bringing donuts or cakes or it's always somebody's birthday. And there's just all this kind of poison around. Oh my gosh. See, I'm a school teacher. And so there's always food around. Like today, a child brought me a chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> you know, just just brought it to me. Here you go. Here's a cookie. So I stuck it in my purse. It's still in my purse. I'll probably feed it to my husband. Although I do eat chocolate chip cookies on occasion. Um, <laughs> but it's true. We have donuts everywhere constantly. And you just, I used to look at them longingly, but I no longer feel that way anymore. I think the adjustment period, though, is really quite tough for people. And so it's like, you know, because... It's just there, right? You know, and, it's, and 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 I know when my last company, which has been four years ago, we had I worked in this kind of environment. You know, I was low carb, and I was, you know, I was sensitive to what I. I mean, I was sensitive to trying to pay attention, and you know, I was still in great shape, and I was like, but I wasn't. The main difference was the inflammation. I mean, when you go ketogenic and you start fasting, it's just like the way you're, you know, the inflammation you lose in your face. I look at pictures, even when I was low carb, but not keto and not doing fasting and my face is so puffy. And I see this in people who come to work for us who are already biohackers and who are already, you know, very conscious and pretty dialed up. But when they really take that next leap into ketosis or, or, you know, a serious commitment to intermittent fasting. Wow. You see such a difference in the size of their head. <laughs> oh yeah. Like my seasonal allergies went away completely because of inflammation. I was, I had such bad inflammation. I had hives at one point. I mean, it was terrible. My body was like, help me. But thanks to intermittent fasting, I have none of that anymore. And it's amazing. Now I just need to drink some natural wines. <laughs> I know it could be the final piece of the puzzle. You know, I speak all over the country about uh, ketosis and ketogenic diet and also fasting and meditation and a whole bunch of other topics. And But it's still, you know, I think it's really hard for people to, you know, when they're surrounded by so much societal pressure and so many temptations that are just in front of them constantly. And I, as I didn't finish saying, but I remember even before I really got dialed up four or five years ago, I had this other company and this kind of kitchen break room where there was always, I'd go in there to get a cup of coffee or something. And here's this big luscious chocolate cake. And I would commonly like, just take a little bite, like, you know, with my fingers, just like a little taste. And then that just leads to coming back again. Cause sugar is highly addictive. And, you know, and sugar is a domino drug. It kind of like cocaine and, and even like alcohol. So this, which is another reason it's super important to drink low alcohol wine. And to stay away from spirits and and, and and dial back the dose of al so sugar, alcohol, cocaine, all domino drugs. So 
you do a little bit and you just want to do a little bit more. And this is how sugar works. And alcohol is the same way. The further you get drawn down into that wormhole, the more likely you are to drink more of it, right? So it's kind of a domino effect. Cocaine's the same way. So it's just, you know, alcohol's the least, but sugar, you, I know you guys have seen the, the study, you know, where they, with lab, with, uh, with rats, you know, where they gave rats the, the, the option of, you know, cocaine and sugar. They choose even the rats that previously were addicted to cocaine. So they were already set up to like cocaine. They, they go for the sugar. It's crazy. Yeah. Highly addictive. So the problem is that once you start down that path, it's a slippery slope. You go by and you have a little teeny piece because it happens to be there. And, um, and then it just becomes a metabolic slippery slope. And then you're so tired the rest of the afternoon from that. And it, like your blood sugar crashes. Then you need to have another piece just because of that. That's what I always found. I was constantly, you know, trying to get ahead of those blood sugar crashes before I began intermittent fasting. When, when you get that low energy, it's not only the sugar bump that you're looking for again, but it's also that dopamine. You just, you just want to get that dopamine hit. Same reason that, you know, when people are tired and lethargic, they tend to get on Facebook. They're not doing their work. I mean, they're looking for, you know, they're looking for a way to, to sort of access something that's going to temporarily make them feel good again. So that's another thing, like, you know, just this dopamine rush, I'm going to go have another piece of this cake because I'm just like, I'm bored and I have low energy. So it's not just the the blood sugar. It's also the the neurochemicals that, you know, we just want something fun to do. It's the reason that you eat on a plane. It's not because the food is good, you know, it's because you're bored and you want something to do. Yeah, it's what you do. And so here's a question for you, Todd. So for People who are new to intermittent fasting specifically, given all that context about the addictive nature of alcohol and all of that, would you suggest that people new to IF continue with their wine drinking in their eating window? Or would you suggest that they go through a period of abstinence while they're transitioning? Or do you think it goes together? What, what are your thoughts on that? I don't know. I think it's an individual, I think it's an individual situation. So in other words, again, if you're drinking sugar-free, low-alcohol, natural wines, you're going to feel different, right? So you're not going to get as high. You're not, you still get high, don't worry. You're just not going to get as high, not as rapidly. You know you're not getting any sugar input. You are having a, a, a completely natural experience, which feels different and better and cleaner. It's the reason we're endorsed by virtually every health leader, because it, it is different. It does work. It's a clean, natural product. But here's what I would say, because I think it's going to be, I, I think if you're drinking standard wines and higher alcohol or spirits, I think you, I think it probably makes sense to have a period of, of abstinence because for most people, you know, this is when they're, they're having the least amount of self-control. I don't find it an issue with lower alcohol wines, uh, but I think each person's going to have to decide you know, are they able to drink and, and able to, if they're drinking a lower alcohol product, and again, one that's certainly sugar-free, I mean, that, that makes a huge difference. But I expect even for some people, even then, you know, they might need a period of abstinence to sort of, sort of get control of their focus. For me, I, you know, it, it doesn't have that effect, but I'm only drinking 
you know, lower alcohol, sugar-free, clean wine. So it doesn't drive me to be compulsive. A lot of people with alcohol, just like with marijuana or other, other sort of uh, certain types of drugs, certainly alcohol and certainly marijuana being among the marijuana worse than alcohol. But it, so it, it's like, you know, they get compulsive to, to eat and to kind of push that pleasure zone up to a different place. I, I don't have that issue with alcohol. I, I don't smoke marijuana very often. I'm not a big fan. So a marijuana does cause me to get hungry and want to eat. Um, and so in unnatural ways that are not, you know, natural or to what, to the way I eat, alcohol doesn't do that to me. So I'm able to, or at least the, you know, the alcohols I drink, which is, I drink exclusive. The only thing I drink are low alcohol, natural wine. So I don't know. I think it's individual. Yeah, no, I think that's a great answer. And that's, Jen and I talk about that a lot on the podcast, just finding what works for you personally and that there's no one right answer for anything. Absolutely. Yeah. I found though, I agree, Todd, and especially after having tried your wines, which are amazing, they don't really instigate that, that craving, that feeling that you just need to eat more and more and more. So I think if listeners who are practicing intermittent fasting do want to maintain alcohol in their eating window, they should definitely look for these uh, these low alcohol natural wines like you provide for us, which is amazing. So do you, Todd, do you break your fast with wine or do you have it with your meal or how do you integrate it into your, your lifestyle? <laughs> That's a tricky <laughs> question. Uh, it's a tricky question because I prefer not to, but I very often do. Um, and I prefer to eat first um, before I consume any alcohol. But in actuality, very often they kind of come together and the wine usually comes first just because I'm either cooking or waiting on service at a restaurant or, you know, that kind of thing. So very often I'm having a little bit of wine in advance of food in an ideal world. Um, although I'm, I'm afraid I'm, I'm too hedonistic for this. Um, in an ideal world, I would eat first before consuming any alcohol, but the reality is that probably that usually doesn't happen. I'm usually have, you know, a few sips or a half a glass or maybe a glass before food arrives, but it comes shortly thereafter. I mean, you need to, I don't drink much on an empty stomach, uh, after fasting. I'm also conditioned to it. I drink wine every day, um, and it's usually how I break my fast. Not, I don't, I don't intentionally do it that way. It's just again, it's just a logistics issue where the wine usually comes out before the food. Um, but I think I just don't drink too much without getting some food in. I mean, if so, that's where you get into risk of sort of, um, you know, having more alcohol in your system faster than you would ideally want. I do want to touch base back on a, on, on a point that you just made because it really made me think of something I think is very powerful. And that is, you know, that each individual person functions their best, maybe under different protocols with some general guidelines to experiment with. And so they can learn and think about techniques from listening to those of us who have experimented with different protocols. But that being said, we highly advocate for an experimental protocol and experiment, experimenting all the time with different things 
until you kind of fine tune what works for you. And I love the proverb to feel is to understand. Oh yeah. When you feel, you will know. Can I jump in with something here? Because I just released my second book called Feast Without Fear. I released it over the weekend. And um, that is exactly the, the the whole point of this book, Feast Without Fear, is that your body and my body are different, you know, with our gut microbiomes and our genetics and just everything. And that just like you said, Todd, when you started the, you know, one meal a day fasting, you became much more in tune with your body. You know, we find that to be the case that as you intermittent fast or fast intermittently, you learn what foods work for you. You know what foods don't work for you. And it's absolutely amazing. I, just, I love hearing that from from someone else, someone like you who's in the biohacking community because it is 100% my experience and that of so many other intermittent fasters that I um, associate with. So thank you for saying that. You know, one of the things that, that's just so wrong in, in, in biohacking and nutritional advice in general and from best-selling authors, and many of them are friends of mine, it's just that it's just this dogmatic approach my diet is the best. My diet protects you. I mean, that's just all nonsense. I mean, nothing, no one protocol or program is right for every person. You know, we have to experiment. But here's the thing. Until we get away from these poisons, until we get away from these processed foods, until we get away from these chemicals, until we get away from eating too much and too often, we cannot feel. To feel is to understand, but we have to feel first. Amen. Right. Exactly. Yes. yes. <laughs> and so true. And the quickest way to get to feeling, in my view, when people ask me, and and, and this is this is thousands of years. This 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 is this advice is thousands of years old, right? The very best way to get in touch with your body: go on a fast. Oh yeah. Yep. Yes. Yep. Just remove everything. Yep. Go on a three-day, a five-day, a seven-day, you know, just go on, a, go on a block fast and then slowly reintroduce, you know, slowly reintroduce some foods and, 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 and start working on extending a daily fast, 16, 18 hours. The 16-hour, the, 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 the two-meal-a-day program feeding in a six-hour window is super easy to comply to. I mean, it doesn't take much to get past skipping breakfast, but if you want to get in touch with your body and how you feel, just stop eating altogether. True. Yep. Yeah. I started with the two meal a day too. I did a five hour window, but at each end of it was a meal, but you're right. When I pushed it later and now I only eat dinner within usually like a five hour window, but still only one real meal. It was incredible. The difference that it made for me and, and being able to tell, you know, what worked for me. Yeah, and just getting into the fasted state every day, that clarity that you were talking about, and that feeling, it's, it's it's crazy to think that some people will never do <laughs> intermittent fast or will never do fasting and they'll never experience probably that feeling. Like historically, I guess before I started IF, I would have that when it would happen by accident, you know, you go too long without eating because you're busy and you have events and such. And I always felt really amazing. I would realize during those times, like my hunger would go away, but I thought I was doing something negative. I thought I was, you know, I needed to be eating. I was probably hurting my metabolism. But now I know that that's actually a very healthy, beneficial thing. So definitely all goes together for sure. So I do have another question for you, Todd. 
So not all of our listeners are ketogenic, but I'm sure a lot are as well. How do you find that wine and alcohol affects the ketogenic state? Well, our wines, because they're sugar-free, I can't, unless, unless a wine is lab tested, I can't tell you whether it's sugar-free or not. I, you, even as a wine professional, we can't taste sugar. I mean, we can taste it at a certain level if it gets super sweet, but at lower levels of sugar, you can't taste it because the acid hides it. So um, I, can, I can sometimes feel it rather than taste it. You know, if I, if I taste a wine that has sugar in it, I can feel it um, uh, because the way it reacts with my brain. Uh, but uh, so our wines, because they're sugar-free, they, they don't have any impact on glucose levels or ketone production. And we drink, I drink one to two bottles, generally a bottle a day, but sometimes two. Wow. <laughs> Do you have any openings at your wine company? <laughs> I'm looking for, I've been teaching for 28 years. I need a new job. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so we, we, uh, I mean, we do wine tastings several, three or four nights a week, uh, where we might taste, you know, 15 to 30 wines. That's the beginning of the process. So once a wine qualifies in its farming and winemaking, we know it's naturally made. We, we know the farmer, then we taste a wine first. And if, we reject about 70% of wines on taste alone. We just don't like the aesthetic. Um, and then the other 30% will then send a, to lab for an independent, we use a certified analogist for independent testing. And then if it passes our lab test, then we'll put it in our portfolio. I can't speak to commercial wines because they're filled with different, uh, many of them have sugar in it. But our wines are sugar-free, so that they, they, they may have no impact, uh, no impact on ketone or blood glucose. And we've had others, Dominic D'Agostino, who's the best-known ketogenic scientist in the United States, has endorsed our wines. He's done independent lab testing on his own blood and our wines. Uh, we just had a diabetic blogger a couple of weeks ago who did a multi-day um, blood testing and published his results and his glucometer results online. Uh, showing that, you know, consuming our wines had no impact on blood glucose. No impact on glucose is going to have no impact on ketones. I'm really fascinated by the subject just as far as how alcohol affects blood glucose and all of that stuff. Because, I, I mean, all the, a lot of studies show that it's good for regulating insulin and such. But then sometimes I wonder if um, by lowering insulin could create like rebound effects or like reactive hypoglycemia or any problems like that. Cause I do find that when I have, when I break my fast with wine that I, I get hungry <laughs> afterwards, but it works well because it pairs really well with my eating window. That's true. <laughs> it pairs with my eating window as well. I mean, here, here's the thing. I, I don't know what your experience is with going to a 24 hour fast, but my experience is that I'm oftentimes not even hungry. You know, and so, or, you know, people say, aren't you starving? My usual answer is the only reason I eat is so I can drink. <laughs> I'm not hungry. I mean, if you're in ketosis, you just. That's true. The longer I go, I usually break my fast around um, four or five or six. I mean, it depends on what I'm doing for the day. But, I, I mean, it's it's two and a half hours past the time I quote, could have broken my fast, the longer it goes, the easier it gets. You know, I think that's what you're saying. 
the later in the day it goes, people are like, oh, my gosh, I'm not going to be able to eat. You know, I chose not to break my fast before this this conversation with y'all, but I knew I would be I would have more mental clarity, you know, if I didn't eat beforehand. And I knew that it would actually get easier to wait versus harder. And that's what people don't understand. They think it's going to get harder and harder and harder until you're, like, about to die of starvation, when in actuality, it gets better and better. Actually, historically, and this is just purely anecdotal and just me, but when I first started intermittent fasting and I had more weight to lose in the beginning, um, definitely the longer I went, the way less hungry I became. And I would I probably I don't know if this is like a confession, but I I would oftentimes have a glass of wine or something to actually instigate my hunger because otherwise I felt like I would just never eat again. <laughs> but um, yeah, I get it. Now that I'm more in maintenance mode and have lost weight, I do find that I don't feel that need to like instigate hunger quite as much. But it's so true that the longer you go, the better you feel. It's the complete opposite of what a lot of people think it'll be. Yeah. So I just, again, it just, you know, for me, um, just eating once a day, this is the reason the wine thing kind of works well to kind of stimulate my hunger just a bit is that I'm just not that hungry. And so to, um, and I find that I eat a lot less and a lot less volume. I expect this in part because it's both psychological as well as I guess my stomach just shrank. Right. So I just don't eat as much volume. I, I, it's, I eat a surprising low amount of calories. Oh, yeah. To jump in, our listeners are often worried about that all the time. It's true. They're like, we're not, e- I'm not eating enough. Um, what am I, is this bad? Am I under eating? What do I do? So, yeah, definitely, that definitely comes up a lot. Well, people ask me, people say that. And I was like, well, listen, here's what we know for sure. The only known protocol to extend longevity is calorie reduction. Yeah. I don't have any issue with eating less and just consuming less calories. I, I, I don't, I, I feel better from it. So uh, I, I just, this concept, people, until they feel and understand the power of intermittent fasting and how much better you feel. And the fact people worry that, you know, that it's like, well, aren't you hungry? Aren't you like ravenous? And I'm like, no. <laughs> It's the opposite. In fact, when I used to eat all day, I was starving. Yes, me too. So when I was doing, when I was eating twice a day, so I, and I hear this from people I work with, and this happens all the time. It's like, they just forget to eat the first meal, right? It's like, they just, they're not hungry and they just forget. And they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't eat. So it's like, it's not like they're ravaged. They're just the opposite. You're just not hungry. So they, you know, people oftentimes forget to eat lunch when they're doing fasting, and particularly when they're in keto- ketosis. Um, they just just kind of forget about it. This has been absolutely amazing. I've learned so much. Listen, can I emphasize how important it is to um, – to turn the alcohol back. It's really, really beneficial. But anyway, we have a special offer for your audience today so they can get a one penny bottle in their order from us. And all they have to do is go to the link dry farm wines with an S dry farm forward slash I F podcast. That's dry farm wines forward slash I F podcast podcast. 
for a penny bottle. Also on our website, I'll tell you a whole story about our health protocol, why these wines work, cover all the topics that we talked about today uh, in terms of why these wines are healthier. And you'll see all the health endorsers on our website who endorse what we're doing because it's a healthier process. So try a bottle. And, um, and uh, again, uh, thank you guys so much for having me on today and giving me such a big floor to kind of tell our story and help people make better decisions about their diet and what they're drinking and eating. And, um, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate you guys being, being, uh, so gracious. Well, thank you for coming. You've been our very first guest in our 26 episodes. So it was so much fun listening to somebody else talk about intermittent fasting. And I think the part, Melanie, that, that really, spoke to me the most is how you echo what we've we say over and over again you I know, know people are like well this is what Melanie and Jen say but you know now we have Todd saying the same exact thing <laughs> and you know you're not new to intermittent fasting it's your lifestyle as well and so really people worry so much about intermittent fasting but once you live it as a lifestyle you don't want to stop you know you're not going to regain the weight and crash your metabolism whatever because this is your lifestyle now you know can have your food and eat it too. Absolutely. Can have your drink and drink it too. And your wine. And I'm so excited to try this wine. I haven't tried it yet, Todd. So now I'm I'm inspired to try it. Oh, it's amazing. It's everything Todd was saying about it is so true. I'm never gonna drink <laughs> conventional wine again. I'm gonna only drink the dry farm wines or make sure when I'm out and about that I do research on the wines that I'm drinking because it definitely you definitely feel the difference, especially as us intermittent fasters who uh, who can understand what everything feels like. So listeners, we definitely encourage you to check out dryfarmwines.com slash ifpodcast if you're interested in trying some of these wines as well. And definitely give us your feedback on, on that if you do. We'd love, love, love to hear from you. A few other quick things before we go. So if you go to ifpodcast.com slash episode 26, that's where you're going to find show notes for this podcast. So we'll have that link there for dry farm wines as well. And also we'll just have any notes about anything we talked about. Also, if you're in iTunes, you can subscribe to our podcast and then you'll get the episodes downloaded automatically each week. This is your first episode listening. We often answer a lot of listener questions on our podcast. And speaking of listener questions, if you have your own questions for the podcast, we would love, love, love to hear them. So there are two ways you can submit those. You can go to our website, which I just mentioned. So that's ifpodcast.com. And you can also directly email us at questions at ifpodcast.com. So yeah, that's that's all all the info. Um, thank you so much, Todd, for joining us today. This has been so amazing. Like I said, you're our first guest, and I really enjoyed it. And combined all my passions, IF wine, all the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good time. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it a lot. Ready to drink drink some wine. <laughs> I wish we were all in the same room. We could have our our toast. <laughs> there you go. We could. All right. Well, thank you. Everybody have a wonderful week. Thanks. Bye. 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 Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, the opinions we discussed on this show do not constitute medical advice. We're not doctors. Check out ifpodcast.com for more information on us. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.